Wiser podcast. Conversations, public talks, and audio essays from the Witz Institute for Social and Economic Research. Hello, I'm Cizwe Mbofu-Walsh and welcome to the WISER podcast. WISER collaborated with the Committee on Global Thought at Columbia University and Africana Studies at Barnard College in New York on a project on unsettlement. Unsettlement, as we explained in part one last week, was founded to address the predicament of those who are stranded in states of indefinite displacement, deferred arrival and recurrent departure. People who live in places that lack infrastructures of permanence, but who must reside there for years, decades, and even generations. Unsettlement speaks to forms of life not always captured by the idea of migrancy and its associated assumption of transition. In part two, launched today, we listened to a brief introductory clip by Sarah Nuttall, director of WISER and co-convener of this collaboration, and then short interventions by Rosalind Morris, Johannes Machinia, Sarah Nuttall, and Ashil Mbembe. Each speak in unique and very different registers to the terms of unsettlement today. The collaboration with Columbia and Barnard, and specifically Rosalind Morris and Yvette Christiansa, on trying to think through the concept of unsettlement has been extremely rewarding. We're pleased too that this collaboration has been across continents, but predominantly led by Africa-based thinkers. When we began collaborating and conversing, we discussed the topic in quite general terms. As we looked more closely and thought harder, and as each participant delved deeper into their own contribution and what it might be, we began to see increasingly clear lines of flight, including notions of landedness and the landed subject, of unfreedom and the liquid borders of the nation state, of black interiorities, of interruption, diversion and suspension, and of deportability, of pluviality, and of habitability. In time, we'll make these short interventions available in text via our WISER transcript series on the WISER website. For now, we hope you'll enjoy listening to today's four further reflections on unsettlement produced by the WISER podcast group. In our first gathering, I tried to elaborate a rationale for the concept of unsettlement by counterposing it to several other terms with which it is proximate. These terms tend to be structured as binary opposites, such as voluntary or economic migration versus forced migration, or civilizational settlement versus nomadic mobility. For this reason, I urged unsettlement is a conceptual and epistemological task and not merely an empirical phenomenon. It is also, as Sarah Nuttall remarked last time, a psychic state. I start from these assumptions. Last time, with respect to the double task of epistemological and geopolitical unsettlement, I used the example of a cross-border black township in South Africa, which, in the earlier period of the democratic transition, was subject to provincial redemarcation and transfer from Gauteng to Northwest Province. I noted that residents who were in some ways remaining in place, nonetheless were being threatened with transfer from one legal and political jurisdiction to another. This odd categorical move, a move at once immaterial and concrete, also threatened to sever the historically sedimented avenues for accessing power and authority via personal relations. 
and it was felt by many to be a form of eviction from a symbolic space of relative rank in the national hierarchy. The evidence of that downgrading, people told me, was to be seen in the fact that matriculation certificates would henceforth be issued by a largely rural provincial authority with no top-ranked educational institutions, rather than an urban industrial provincial one, which is also the locus for national intellectual capital. In an especially visceral idiom, made all the more powerful in a place of deep-level mining, where sinkholes and underground catastrophes lead to shifting earth, people spoke of the ground being pulled out from under them. Now this fragment of a case study allows us to see how complex the notion of unsettlement is. Today I want to extend this consideration along the lines of debt and to indebtedness linked to non-creditability as well as incredibility or doubtfulness. We commonly speak in English of debt as that which can be settled, by which we mean cancelled. Now indebtedness is the condition of an increasing number of people including a very substantial percentage of those who are fleeing their homes and entering into that interminable passage that we call unsettlement. These people are those who cannot obtain credit or whose creditability is deemed incredible by lending establishments. Increasingly, formal banking institutions are entering into and attempting to capture the market where informal practices like stockfells, funeral societies, and pawn shops once performed. It is possible indeed to think of this as a new and unsettled territory of originary accumulation. In any case, the result has been a kind of double displacement. Now informal networks that are being displaced by banks and insurance corporations have never been uh, uh, necessarily communalist. They're often dominated by gangsters, usurers, and petty thugs. But just as the banks can charge higher interest on loans given to those with minimal assets, so too can gangsters, usurers, and thugs charge even more when the least creditable, those who cannot access the newly expanding banking sector, are thrown back on a transformed informal sector. The most vulnerable to this double displacement are illegalized migrants. But as the investigations into the Marikana massacre showed, this double displacement, which is also a double encirclement, is commonly experienced by migrants of all sorts, legal and illegalized. These are the people I would refer to as unsettled. I think we can call this predicament a kind of terror by debt. And it is this terror that, in my experience, compels so many people to move without necessarily choosing to do so. Among other things, it is this terror by debt that travesties the otherwise neat conceptual binary between voluntary economic migration and forced migration. This terror is not left behind, however. It haunts and shadows the fugitives of debt and makes them feel unsure in the informal townships where they often take up residence and where they are often vulnerable to forms of landlordism that thrive on the cash-only economy that is the flip side of this world of debt, this world where People are always behind, always unable to settle their debt. If debt is, among other things, a narrative, we can say of these people that their account is suspended. Now the question of creditability is not merely a matter of formal adjudication or the implementation of algorithmic pseudo-judgment. It is also linked to forms of implicit accusation that cast the newcomer into a position of dubiousness or 
incredibility. And this being doubted is itself part of the psychic burden of those who can't get credit, where credit is the means to cancel one debt, say the amount owed for a cell phone, with another, say a cash advance on payment for piecework. Again and again in townships of the West Rand, but also elsewhere, I have heard people speak of being stranded in this interstitial zone, awaiting payment for a service performed even as they are pressed for payment on the outstanding debt for a commodity, whether purchased on the licit or illicit market. And we all know that payments for services can easily be withheld when the person owed is an illegalized migrant. Xenophobic nationalism constitutes one of the structuring frameworks of economic violence. In the end, two temporalities vex people on the doubled horizon of unsettled and unsettling debt. And in my experience, when the two debts cannot be reconciled after every effort, people often move on to the next township or the next neighborhood of the informal settlement. They will perhaps invent new forms of being, take a new name, or find alternative networks of support. But it is rare that someone escapes this islanding by debt. Their movements and the incapacity to accumulate that is the result of those movements often leads uh, to an intensified sense of being stuck, blocked, their desire interrupted. And this stuckness, this being blocked or interrupted, is the ironic flip side of unsettlement, which is anything but mobility. It is, of course, not possible here to do more than sketch a new question for our consideration, and so I'll stop there but urge us to think the intimacy between debt and unsettlement as we move forward. When I was conducting fieldwork for my doctoral research between 2015 and 2016 with undocumented Zimbabwean migrants in Emalatleni in South Africa's Mpumalang province, I had remarkably insightful conversations with Kogoa Kuda, a woman in her late 40s on undocumented migrants' experiences of migrant illegality. She was working as a live-out domestic worker and was living in an informal settlement called Ilandeni with her four-year-old grandson, Kuda, and his mother. Kugwa Kuda first came to South Africa in 2005, returned to Zimbabwe in 2008 after the deadly xenophobic attacks, and came back to South Africa again in 2011. Kuda and his mother joined her in 2015 and he was quickly enrolled in a private crash in the informal settlement so that his mother could also look for a job as a domestic worker. Gogwa Kuda owned a shack in Ilandeni and she had planted some fruit trees on her yard, a mango tree, a peach tree and a purple tree. The trees were still very small, and during one of our conversations, I asked her if she would one day harvest fruits from uh, those trees. Dejectedly, she replied, No ways. I don't think so. Maybe I just planted the trees for someone else. With what is happening now, we may be chased out of this country anytime. These people no longer want us here. Recently, I heard that Kogwa Kuda returned to Zimbabwe in 2019 with a grandson this time vowing never to come back to South Africa again. Her reason to leave, I was told she was tired. I remember her recounting incidents when the police would conduct dramatic raids, sometimes at night, sometimes on weekends, 
She would tell me about how citizens threatened to chase foreigners out of Ilandeni. I'm sure witnessing the immigration raids uh, by the police and knowing that someday she'll be the target and hearing citizens threatening to expel foreigners out of Ilandeni made her tired and decide to leave South Africa for good. But the story shows us some contradicting dynamics between undocumented migrants' aspirations or desires and their experience of life as illegal migrants. The trees that she planted showed her desire for a prolonged presence in South Africa. But the lived realities of migrant illegality tended uh, those desires. Unsettlement for undocumented migrants often comes when personal desire is incompatible with the lived experience of migrant illegality, which is often propagated by migration control measures that restrict their movement, limit their life chances, and constrain the possibility of prolonged presence. According to Nicholas D. Genova, migrant illegality is lived through a palpable sense of deportability, which is the state of living with arrest and deportation as a ubiquitous possibility, even if not actually affected. In South Africa, state officials, particularly the police and officials from the Department of Home Affairs, are the major actors in policing undocumented migration through arresting, detaining, and deporting undocumented migrants. However, the country's migration control regime also tacitly allows community enforcement measures that place the onus on citizens to report the presence of illegal foreigners in their communities. But are such measures effective in solving the issue of undocumented migration? I note that uh, such measures hardly achieve the presumed goal of stopping undocumented migration. Migration policing practices in South Africa actually license the targeting and restraining of illegal foreigners by whatever means state officials and in most cases, citizens deem appropriate. Given the prevalence of anti-immigrant sentiment in the country, this makes undocumented migrants vulnerable to vigilante justice enacted by citizens, which often result in violent anti-immigrant attacks. Such acts of vigilantism resemble the Minutemen project in the United States of America in April 2005, where citizens who were disgruntled by the failure of the U.S. government to secure the borders against illegal migrants allegedly flowing into the U.S. set up citizen patrols along the Arizona-Mexico border to monitor and report illegal migrants. Such measures of immigration enforcement subject undocumented migrants to relentless threats of deportation or expulsion and reenact their sense of deportability that is the understanding that any time they can be arrested and deported or chased out of South Africa, which makes them more uncomfortable and consequently plunges them into a state of protracted impermanence or rather unsettlement. What we see with the measures of migration control in South Africa is that they seek to encourage undocumented migrants through regular and systematic intimidation to leave the country voluntarily has happened with Gogoakuda. For some undocumented migrants like Gogoakuda, deportability conjures the imminence and inevitability of actual deportation. 
which then makes them to choose to self-deport even before the actual deportation materializes. In my work, I make the argument that this palpable sense of deportability invokes the idea of waiting, but not as a measure of willed anticipation or, or optimism, but as a dreaded anticipatory preparedness where they calculate the risks and costs of remaining in South Africa. Only when such risks and costs reach a certain threshold beyond which they perceive life in South Africa is unbearable, that is when they would be prepared to leave. With fear and trepidation, the undocumented migrants wait for the possible materialization of their arrest and deportation, or rather expulsion if it is effected by citizens. This waiting is marked by some degree of uncertainty and indeterminacy in terms of how and when they will be deported and who will deport them. Uh, this uncertainty and indeterminacy are not simple accidental aspects of deportability. Rather, they are central to its functioning as a deterrence mechanism. By making the threat of deportation real, uncertain and unpredictable, the state as well as citizens achieve the objective of creating an environment that makes undocumented migrants choose to voluntarily depart from South Africa. Recently I've been thinking and writing a lot about rain, or as I've called it, pluviality, a term referring to heavy rainfall and flooding drawn from the earth sciences. Rain remains almost entirely neglected in critical humanities work, particularly strange, since climate change is producing more torrential rain and intense storms than ever. How could we think of unsettlement in relation to rain? I'd like to develop here two very brief initial thoughts in relation to camps and roadblocks. I was, perhaps like you, so viscerally struck by images in January of this year of heavily flooded unsettlement camps, as we could call them now perhaps, across Syria, Bangladesh, Greece and other places. Torrential rivers of rain run between thousands of tents, bent and broken poles and people royal in the mud. The acronym for the Refugee Assistance and Information Network working in many of these camps, I read, happens to be R-A-I-N. When these vast camps for warehoused people in townships of tents are laid out, thousands of plants and trees, of course, are removed, and with them the roots that could hold the soil in place to prevent the multiple major landslides also happening in these places, in the extreme rainfall now doubled by climate change. States of unsettlement are entangled with unsettled terrain, much of it never intended for human settlement in the first place, producing intensely vulnerable situations and a roiling of earth, water and sky across human and non-human worlds. In a rare essay on rain, Julie Livingston observes that for Botswanans, knowledge of rainwater in this region is deep, long-standing and metaphysically expansive. But for unsettled people, living in a sense in places they've never been, it is difficult to read the rain. I recall a scene from Johnny Steinberg's book, A Man of Good Hope, in which Somalian-born Assad Abdullahi flees xenophobic violence in Kailiche, Cape Town, and does so in, in what turns out to be a flooded and rain-soaked military base in Ottery. He then heads to a camp with a friend called Sutvata, meaning sweet water, because, quote, we heard it was dry. In fact, the camp is known for excess flooding in Cape Town winters. And so begins Assad's unravelling to his most vulnerable place. Reading for rain, 
undertaking something of a rain gauge reading is one of the clearer ways of being able to read for home, being unable to a mark of deep unsettlement. Rain gauges, also known as pluviometers, can only read for rain in local places or tell a single story in any case. They're quite useless at reading for large-scale climate change-induced pluvialities. For that, refugee rights organizations are now poring over images from NASA satellites, looking for atmospheric rivers, as they're called, huge rain systems in the sky capable of dumping catastrophic storms, and for rain shafts and microbursts, new vocabularies for rain as much as we need them for unsettlement. A second infrastructure of unsettlement is the roadblock. Roadblocks are light and portable modicums of power, generally neglected in studies of governance in Africa, writes Piers Scoton in one of the few studies available. Roadblock politics, he continues, is the politics of the unskirtable, although I think not, and only acquire significance in relation to the flows they obstruct. I.L. Weissman refers to them in passing as temporary, transportable border synonyms. Often found in bottlenecks and corridors, they're frequently accompanied by rivers. In just two provinces in the DRC, according to this research, there are 789 roadblocks. None but one of the roads is tarred. What then about roadblocks and rain? From the basin of Lake Chad to the sources of the Nile and all the way to the southernmost tributaries of the Congo River, writes Scoton, rebels, robbers, soldiers, police, traditional authorities and administrative officials all partake in complex choreographies of taxation and circulation. Surrounding his roadblock accounts with water, he never once mentions flooding, rain, mud and weather. Yet Africans seeking mobility on this continent constantly play off water against land, sometimes roiling in the mud, in a politics precisely of skirting, sending suitcases by river while paying their way through multitudinous border synonyms. Often this wet road blocking happens downstream from borders and their river crossings. When the Limpopo River is full or flooding, canoes carry undocumented Zimbabweans across to South Africa, drifting and skirting in and out of sight as well as down river and off the banks. Bursting rain-filled rivers can't be contained by national boundaries or roadblock border synonyms. Flow and blockage, circulation and imposition, skirting and drifting, roiling in mud, endlessly elaborate the visceral and material terms of unsettlement across sub-Saharan Africa. Michael Kay, in Kutsia's novel The Life and Times of Michael Kay, determined to escape the carceral confinements and conditions of coloniality, Uh, of his life in Cape Town, heads up country in the interminable rain, skirting roadblocks. It is the mist which fine rain brings as he gets to the escarpment that enables him to skirt a roadblock, a final one, he thinks, until it clears, blue skies at last, and he walks, permitless, into captivity, from which he must free himself again. Rain, pluviality, can feel, especially but not only in fiction, metaphorical like a structural condition. But it is also material, a medium, a material medium, a roiling with the pluvial wetness of the sky and earth in ever more complex logics of blockage and flow, flow and blockage. What we might ask are the changing states that upend the terms of unsettlement in these 21st century African conditions and their micro-bursting, mini-entangled geographies of the political and the pluvial. Maybe uh, in the last instance, 
we humans have reached a threshold uh, boundary. What kind of boundary, if not one which reflects fundamental changes in the Earth system as such? Our capacity to hold the Earth on our shoulders and reciprocally the Earth's capacity to hold us on its shoulders, all of this is now at stake. The possibility that if nothing is done, our planet might no longer be habitable in the near future represents for me the great unsettlement. The notion of habitability has been understood in a number of ways. The way in which it has been deployed in the Earth system sciences should be of great interest to those of us laboring in the humanities. First, it has been understood in terms of life that needs energy to maintain metabolism, energy to guarantee that uh, processes such as cell growth, cell division keep unfolding, energy to make sure that humans remain the house for other organisms, they have always been the house for bacteria, for viruses, for microbes, for water, and so on. Habitability has also been understood in terms of uh, the surface temperature on the Earth, in terms of the atmospheres, or in terms of the complex interaction of the wind systems, ocean currents, solar insulation, and other protective layers for life especially those that absorb radiation or shield us against uh, charged particles. There have been countless other approaches to habitability. Whatever the case, whenever the term is invoked in the Earth system sciences, it usually refers to important conditions that enable life on Earth, conditions which are crucial for the existence of life. But as we speak, key elements in the surface temperature of the Earth, such as natural greenhouse warming, have been destabilized. The fact is this, the key determinants of the climate system on Earth are no longer stable. The whole point of ongoing debates on planetary habitability is that life evolves under favorable conditions. If life exists somewhere, it means that certain conditions have been met which are favorable to its existence and evolution. Where they are not maintained, unsettlement ensues. Habitability is therefore about the complex relationship between life and environment. It's about the equilibrium between our requirements and what the earth can provide. If such equilibrium is ruptured, then limits are put to life. This is what is happening in many parts of the world and this is the reason why many are forced into exodus. 
life in many parts of our world is squeezed or is no longer evenly distributed. The question of the squeezing of life, of its uneven distribution on earth, of why certain regions are better equipped to harbor it than others, these are political questions, questions of justice. In light of what I have just argued, and settlement is but a consequence of these larger processes.